the matter of who goes to space. Um, when we when we create these space settlements, will we be bringing along a perfectly representative subset of the human population? Probably not. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire our listeners to be more philanthropic, act sustainably, and embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, please do subscribe to the podcast. It makes a huge difference for us. Today, it's a, it's a really great pleasure to have two guests on board, Lucianne Walkowicz and Erica Nesvold, who are the co-founders of Just Space Alliance. And today, essentially, we're going to be talking about space ethics, so space exploration, planetary defense, policy considerations. What does that look like? Space ethics sounds fascinating. So without further ado, Lucianne, Erica, welcome on board to the show. Thanks for having us. So what exactly is the Just Space Alliance? What exactly is space ethics? Tell us a little bit about that. So I'll just start with our mission statement. Great. The mission of the Just Space Alliance is in two parts. First of all, we advocate for a more inclusive and ethical future in space. Mm-hmm. But we also, we like to harness visions of tomorrow for a more just and equitable world here on Earth today. So the first half we can certainly talk about, it's it's how we want to ensure that our future def- descendants in space not only can survive, but thrive there. But the second half I think is equally important, which is to use people's excitement about space to introduce them to social justice issues that are happening here on Earth. And to use, um, I, I, f- I found that when people are thinking about space and, and space settlement and sort of science fiction-y kind of ideas, it lets them open their mind to different ways of living um, and different solutions that maybe otherwise they would have thought of as being too radical. Um, and we can apply that to issues that we're dealing with here on Earth today. So we have a, a, bl- a blank canvas. I wouldn't necessarily call space a blank canvas, Mm -hmm. um, but I would definitely say that, uh, you know, when people think about systems here on Earth, often things feel very immovable to them. Um, You know, I, I, like Erica, have encountered this a lot with folks who um, just will look at things that they're maybe not happy with on Earth, that they're maybe... um, They'd like to see it done a different way, but it just seems like everything is too entrenched. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's that's not really true on Earth either, right? Like a lot of things that seem particularly entrenched here on Earth are even relatively new, certainly on the cosmic scale, um, but even often on the sort of scale of uh, humanity's lifetime here on our planet. but it, it really provides kind of like an imaginative playground. And, you know, to, to sort of build off of what Erica just said, I think part of the thing that is important to remember is that, you know, it, it's not just about letting people play with this kind of science fiction future. It's that sometimes um, these ethical issues that we're discussing in space are actually things that we're facing here on Earth right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just raising awareness about social justice issues. Um, It's really specifically about the ways in which our history here on Earth and the practices that we bring um, to some of our big challenges today play out in um, the context of space as well. Mm -hmm. And so tell me, uh, both of you come from a background of uh, astronomy, astrophysics. Tell me a little bit about your backgrounds and and, um, 
how you ended up founding this organization and, and what's driving your, your individual interests in this. I'm going to let Lucianne go first because the story works better if she goes first. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do that. Sure. Um, you know, it, I definitely do come from an astrophysics background. Um, I was primarily for the beginning of my career interested in stars and how, and, and actually this is still my research interest is stars and how they influence um, the possibilities of life on the planet that on um, planet or planets that mm -hmm. orbit them. Um, I would say that I also have a longstanding interest in social justice um, and a long involvement in uh, activism that basically came out of coming of age in the era of the Iraq War. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that for many years, those two uh, aspects of my life were very separate. Right. But uh, a funny thing started to happen for me a couple of years ago in that I worked um, for many years uh, since just prior to its launch on NASA's Kepler mission. Mm -hmm. And uh, finding planets around other stars and understanding them became a much more central focus of my work uh, rather than just understanding the stars themselves. And at the same time, I started to do a lot more um, public communication of science. Okay. And... Uh, around about a couple couple years ago now, um, you know, maybe mm, seven years or so, I I started to encounter this idea that started bubbling up from people who were not scientists who I was speaking with about my work that the goal of finding planets around other stars and particularly the focus of finding Earth-like planets mm -hmm. or at least Earth-sized planets that the goal was not just to discover those planets, um, you know, out there in the universe, but to provide a second home for humanity mm -hmm. when our planet was no longer livable. And it started to happen so often that I started to think about like, well, where is this idea coming from? And I realized that that idea was coming from a lot of the rhetoric that was coming out of Silicon Valley based new space companies like SpaceX, for example, um, you know, other big ones are Blue Origin. Um, and that the marketing narrative uh, that was coming out of those companies was that they needed to run their company and go to space um, because they were going to, quote, back up humanity. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that sounded like a totally cockamamie notion. <laughs> um, you know, not that humans can go to space because obviously humans can and do go to space um, and in fact might one day go to these other worlds. But the idea that uh, essentially we get a get out of jail free card um, mm -hmm. for abandoning this planet, which, you know, if you're somebody with an astronomy or planetary science background, um, you realize very, uh, very deep in your bones, the challenge of living on some of these other worlds that are very, very hostile, especially compared with even the most hostile environments here on our planet. And one of the things that come out of my research for me is an appreciation of this planet and all of the ways in which um, it makes our lives as human beings possible, including the fact that we send people, literally, we use resources to send people off of the planet and to mm. study space beyond um, the planet that we live on, in part because our planet meets our needs in many ways. Um, and so I, that was sort of the starting place for me. Uh, and I ended up being increasingly irritated <laughs> by, by those narratives um, and started to speak up against them. Um, I gave a talk, a TED Talk in 2015 mm -hmm. about um, this concept of using Mars as a backup planet and why I thought that was not the right way to think about it. 
and, um, you know, went on to make this really part of my, um, my central piece of my research. Um, Mm -hmm. so that intersection of science and society. So I, uh, ended up going and spending a year in residence at the library of Congress as their chair of astrobiology and convening, um, not only doing a lot of, uh, you know, frolicking amongst the the books, sure. um, which is what you do. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but Great also, con- yeah, uh, a wonderful place. Um, but also convening um, an on-conference and a public event that's centered around um, bringing some of these dialogues about Earth's history and the practices that we have here and now, um, including uh, those things that are maybe unjust um, or could be done a different way that could be more just and how we look at the intersection of that and our plans and visions for space exploration. Mm-hmm. And that actually was how I met Erica. Um, so maybe Erica, this would be the moment for you to chime in. <laughs> sure. This is why the story works so well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I also have a background in astronomy um, and I've always been very interested in human space flight when I was um, much younger. In fact, I, I dreamed of starting a nonprofit advocating for mm-hmm. space settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I got my PhD, when I was a postdoc, I did a six-week program out in California at, uh, at SETI and NASA Ames working on planetary defense work. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, they entered the program introduced us to a lot of people working in the new space industry. I was excited for that because I had been following the commercial spaceflight industry with interest um, because I thought it was good progress towards human settlements in space. Mm-hmm. But then I was very dismayed when I met them that they didn't seem to be considering a lot of issues that I felt were going to be very important about um, planetary protection, for example. So protecting the environments in space from Earth microbes, for example, mm-hmm. or even just basic considerations about labor rights or, or, or who gets to go into space. Um, I would ask them these questions and they would say, oh, we'll worry about that later. Mm-hmm. And uh, that concerned me. So, but but I didn't have a, a lot of background in these areas. So, I actually started my own podcast. Great, which congratulations! Ran, thank you. It uh, it was a limited run, thirteen episode podcast called Making New Worlds, and every episode I did a different topic that I thought was going to be relevant in space, like labor rights, reproductive rights, um, things like that. And mm-hmm. I would interview experts, ethicists, and sociologists who had been doing a lot of work in these areas, but hadn't maybe considered their work in the context of space. So Mm -hmm. those were some great conversations. Um, I got even more interested in these ideas. And so when I heard about Lucianne's conference, Decolonizing Mars, I was in the DC area. And so I went and it was the best conference I've ever been to. And uh, at the end, Lucianne and I decided to formalize the conversations we'd been having a bit more into a nonprofit organization to sort of connect these people, ethicists, sociologists, historians, who have been taught working on these issues for generations, really, uh, to connect them with the people working in the space industry who are maybe interested in bringing more ethics into their work. Excellent. And so that organization is the Just Space Alliance. Tell me a little bit about that organization as it stands today. How long has it been running? And what's it doing? Well, we're very new. Uh, we just actually um, celebrated our one-year anniversary at the Happy very birthday. end of. Um, thank you. Happy birthday! Yeah. <laughs> um, at the very end of November, we've just been setting up the organization, putting our board together, 
doing some, you know, vision making about uh, what we would like our activities to be. But we have also had the opportunity to partner with some like-minded thinkers mm-hmm. and to do some events. So back in, I guess, early July, we had our, our first event um, that was a partnership with the New America and Future Tense uh, mm-hmm. groups. So that was about governance in space. We worked together with them on the program um, in creating a day-long program of panels that delved into different aspects of the the legal frameworks for space. So, mm-hmm. you know, looking not only at like the history of what it means to settle places, um, whether that be space or places here on earth and how we carry those legacies with us, but also, you know, what actually are the laws that govern us going into space? What are the legal frameworks that exist and how might those need to change or be expanded um, or both to actually have humans living in space? Um, and that, you know, goes into all kinds of different areas. So, you know, Erica um, touched on uh, a few of them by saying, you know, like environmental protections, labor rights, the kinds of things that we're, um, we're seeing, you know, and have seen throughout Earth's history as being some of the, the primary concerns for people and their ability to not just survive, but thrive. So, you know, this first year of the organization, I, I think what we'd ultimately like to do is um, maybe do a, co- a follow-on conference to uh, Decolonizing Mars, which was mm-hmm. that meeting at the Library of Congress. But at the moment, um, you know, I think we've very happily been ramping up um, those meetings. And we have a newsletter. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. What's your website address? I believe it's justspacealliance.org. Justspacealliance.org. No, that's great. And so what are the things that we might be thinking about when we think about space ethics that maybe are counterintuitive? Are, are there some preconceived notions that the average person has about what space settlement exploration might be? And what would happen if we do find life elsewhere? And how would we treat it? And do you think that there's any sort of lessons to be drawn about um, about things that we should perhaps not do when, we, when we're exploring other, other planets and so forth? Well, I'm, I'm going to let Lucien handle the astrobiology side of your question. Um, but as for misconceptions, I want to go back to something you said earlier on, which is uh, referring to space as a blank, a blank canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hear this a lot. You hear this all the time in the space industry and among space enthusiasts, that space is a blank slate. People are very excited about the the new mm-hmm. utopian societies that we, we can create up there. And I've often heard people in the industry refer to space as the uh, wild west, the new wild mm-hmm. west. But space is not a blank slate um, because we are not blank slates, humans. Um, when we go up there, we're carrying all the baggage uh, that we carry here on earth, the ways that we are raised, the, the cultures and societies that raise us, even s- just the matter of who goes to space. Um, when we When we create these space settlements, will we be bringing along a perfectly representative subset of the human population? Probably not. Are we going to have to pay our way into space? That's going to affect who gets to go out there and and settle space. And that's going to affect the cultures of the societies that we're creating in space. And the idea of it as a wild west is problematic in itself because the wild west as in the the western frontier of European settlement in North America was not a great place for many, many people. And to, to celebrate the idea of a a lawless wild west in space is to ignore uh, all of those problems and possibly to repeat them. Fascinating. Yeah, 
And I'll I'll build on um, what what Erica has brought up um, to point out that you know if you do look at the history of um, that idea of the frontier as it played out here in North America, it's not just that those uh, those places were you know not great for a lot of people. It's that you know specifically the construction of the idea of wilderness um, and the idea even of nature versus, uh, you know, nature versus society, that those two things were separate, was used as a tool in the early uh, conquest of the Americas to move some people, namely indigenous people, out of the con- out of the category of being society and moving them into the category of being nature. So, you know, when people uh, talk about this sort of romantic notion that they have about like the wilderness, and like the untouched frontier of the Americas, particularly here in North America, you know, those quote untouched frontiers <laughs> had uh, established governments, um, multiple nations living within them. Um, you know, the the entire construction of the narrative would lead you to believe that it was like five people running around in the woods, which is not at all what was happening um, here. You know, there was an entire uh, multiple nations of people who were displaced and often murdered um, for the conquest of the Americas. And so, um, you know, we, I think, as uh, as Erica and I are both Americans, I think, you know, it's, it is incumbent upon us to question any kind of narrative that whitewashes that history. And also question that narrative in spaces like, you know, Mars, for example, where, you know, at the moment, um, and this is where the astrobiology side of things come in, you know, we we don't have any evidence that there is life on other worlds, but we do have a lot of evidence that Mars was probably more habitable in the past. And that means that, you know, even though we've done a lot of uh, scouting of the surface with rovers and whatnot, um, it might be that we discover that there are environments under the surface um, in some of perhaps these underground lakes that we now have evidence for that still harbor um, life on Mars today. And so when we talk about going to these other worlds, they truly, uh, you know, in the very most practical sense, there might be life living there, you know, and then uh, that kind of brings you to uh, the ideas uh, that we might have about um environments and their worth. So, uh, you know, when we look at the history of Earth, a lot of times people look at environments as a kind of place that is solely for the utilization of humanity. Um, You know, people who are interested in mining, for example, might look at environments and think about like, well, what can I extract from this place? And you see that happening a lot when we look at space environments like the moon or Mars um, but of course, those uh, those we'll call them experiments have been done here on Earth, right? Like strip mining um, is <laughs> is a very bad thing that uh, causes a lot of environmental impacts um, that you know, while not intended, uh, are uh, kind of part of the process. So you know, to take that to this sort of space exploration context specifically, when you hear someone like Elon Musk talk about how we're going to, uh, quote, terraform Mars. That's the kind of the catch-all term for any time you might transform an environment to be more suitable for humans, right? You know, he talks about uh, sort of very um, glibly about uh, releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere of Mars and making the atmosphere thicker and therefore warmer, and then you could have liquid water on the surface. 
Um, you know, first of all, from a scientific and engineering point of view, uh, that uh, is poppycock. Um, <laughs> that's just planets are very complicated systems, and there's a, a wide variety of reasons why um, terraforming is not uh, really a thing that we're even sure could happen, um, and certainly not the way that he's talking about it. Um, but also, uh, when we send things into space, Mars rovers, for example, um, you know, we have this set of regulations called planetary protection that govern like how well you have to clean the rover to not contaminate the surface of Mars. But of course, if you completely transform the environment to be suitable for human humans, you have um, by its nature contaminated the surface and also um, disrupted the environment in a way that might be uh, contrary to other life that might live there. And that, you know, a lot of the the means of which like Elon Musk uses to talk about terraforming are literally planetary scale strip mining. So, you know, there's this very, I would say, concrete, not just conceptual tie between the um, science fiction-y ideas of like transforming environments in space and the way in which we have transformed environments here on Earth. Mm-hmm. In terms of being able to put somebody on Mars, we're not that far away from that, are we? We're not that far away from putting, a, <laughs> putting getting a human to Mars. As in, in terms of rockets and orbital mechanics, we've worked those details out. Um, how long that person's going to survive there is another story. And certainly uh, when you're talking about space settlements, the idea of having a self-sustaining society there is is far beyond our reach at the moment. So maybe 100 years from now? You know, it kind of depends on how much in the way of like resources you want to devote to the problem. You know, I think, um, you know, Erica's point about like rockets and orbital mechanics, like certainly um, you don't need, you know, going to Mars, for example, sending a human being to Mars is not like trying to send a human being out of the solar system to like a planet that orbits a totally different star mm -hmm. um, where like the travel time is far longer than a human life scale. And you'd actually like need a really big revolution in propulsion to make that possible for a, a single human in one lifetime. Um, mm -hmm. Or you'd need to like actually have some of those science fiction, like hibernation pods or something. Sure. You know, going to Mars is not like that in the sense that it is totally possible within a human lifetime to do it. It doesn't require a big revolution in propulsion, but it does have a lot of really open questions about um, how you sustain human life and health. And it requires a very, very substantial amount of resources, meaning money um, and time being devoted to it. So you have to decide essentially as, you know, not only a space program like NASA, but also, you know, like as, um, you know, a private company or as a nation really, because of the <laughs> incredible amount of funds it would take that that is like your highest priority thing that you want to do. Um, so, you know, uh, when we look at going to Mars, that timeline can be, shorter or longer, depending on not only resources, but also priorities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to, to carry on with um, where Erica was going, talking about like human um, life being sustained on another planetary surface, you know, a lot of um, this kind of gets into the medical ethics side of things. And this is one of the other ways in which space and ethics really intersect with one another is that, you know, I, uh, when you look at the astronauts' health standards um, that one has to meet to, you know, for example, send a human being 
um, to the International Space Station. You're sending people to an environment that they did not evolve to live in. And so you can meet their needs in certain ways, um, you know, making it possible to breathe and to eat and all that stuff. Um, but we do see from astronauts that come back from the ISS that they undergo uh changes in their bodies. Um, so for example, changes to bone density, where a lot of people come back with osteoporosis, um, and changes to their eyesight, where uh, people's eyesight changes while they're in space. Some of those things are reversible. So osteoporosis, people are back in Earth's gravity for a while. They take calcium supplements. They're generally speaking okay. Mm -hmm. Some of those changes to eyesight are actually permanent. And you know that's just going onto a structure that orbits our own planet, right? So if you want to go to Mars, you have to think about um, the high radiation environment and how you'll shield people. Um, the, uh, the fact that if you have, say, a space program like um, has been forwarded by these new space companies where you have not only um, NASA choosing the astronauts, but now a wider variety of bodies in space, mm -hmm. um, then that might mean that you have different outcomes for people that can't be predicted ahead of time. You also have the fundamental medical ethics question of the fact that you're asking people to participate in an experiment. And when we do that here on Earth, consent is kind of the, the zeroth order, most top of the list priority, right? People have to be able to consent and also to withdraw that consent. But what does it mean to withdraw your consent if you're on a spaceship on your way to Mars and you can't turn around and go home? <laughs> and, then, um, and then let's say that we we work out all of these details um, to keep people alive for their lifetime on Mars. If you want a self-sustaining colony, that means you have to replace your population, which means you have to be able to have babies in space. And we have no idea, because it's never been done, what the effects of microgravity and radiation are on a developing fetus. And if we want to find out, then at that point, we're experimenting on pregnant women and fetuses, which is not something that is practiced these days here on Earth for good reasons. So what do we do then? For the sake of uh, a hypothetical here, let's say Mars did have life and uh, sentient beings, perhaps. Would you be optimistic that we Earthlings would be benevolent and, um, and behave in a manner that would, um, would look after it? that uh, ecosystem in Mars? Or do you think perhaps we, um, we may behave otherwise? You know, I would say that humans behave a wide variety of ways. Um, you know, I think that uh, a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing about space right now um, is very directly tied to the history of European colonization. Um, and that a lot of the people who are writing those narratives are descendants and beneficiaries of European colonization, right? Um, you know, like uh, when we look at people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, for example. So, you know, I think that um, I see, I, I am optimistic in the sense that there are lots of people that have existed on this planet um, that were not participants um, in European <laughs> colonization and don't think about our futures that way. And that, you know, I think that we can choose now, right? Like we're not on Mars yet and we're, we don't have anybody on their way to Mars just yet. Um, but I think that one of the things we can do is we could choose to, for example, have a wider variety of voices in the room. 
Um, you know, right now, a lot of these agendas in space and these visions of um, space futures are being forwarded by only a few voices who are essentially saying that, um, you know, space can't wait for us to think about how we might do the future better than we have the, um, the past. And, you know, I think that I would push back on that and say that, um, you know, the future can be a wide variety of things and humans can choose to behave in a wide variety of ways and that it doesn't always have to be a repetition of the harm from the past. Um, and that part of the reason that we assume that it, it has to be is that we're only hearing one narrative. Yeah, I, I agree with Lucianne. I think that it's, it's too easy to fall into a very cynical mindset. Um, fueled in part by the um, enormous amount of dystopian narratives in our fiction right now, um, but uh, both about how possible it is to go to space and how we'll act when we get there, how we'll act when we find life in space. But uh, but I agree. I think we humans will be what we choose to be. Um, I think that we will. I, I'm an optimist. I think that we'll solve our technical problems, and I think that if we choose to, we will solve our social problems and create a, a better world for all of us, both here on Earth and in space. But, but we have to choose to do that. Hmm. And where does space ethics reside today? Somebody who's curious about ethics in space, where do they go to learn about it, to research it? You know, I think that uh, the answer is that space ethics resides everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's not like you have a, a great prolific number of like programs that are like specifically get your master's in space. <laughs> there's no faculty, no faculty on space ethics. Well, actually, no, there are no faculty. The, the, there are yeah. in, uh, particularly in philosophy departments. So this is where you tend to find ethicists. And there are people who have been doing their, yes. their work for their whole careers on space ethics. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's not a standard major you're going to find at most universities. And unfortunately, up until this point, uh, it seems that they have mostly been isolated from the people actually doing mm -hmm. the work in the space industry, despite their best efforts. Yeah, I would say that, you know, there there are specific space ethicists. There are people that work on space law, for example, but that space ethics resides everywhere in the sense that these issues reside everywhere. You know, the, uh, the way that I think um, we think about any of the issues that we've we've touched on, and even some others um, here on Earth, that any number of those those sort of more earthbound uh, issues or programs that you might want to study, whether it's you know legal frameworks, whether it's um, you know uh, prison abolition, um, whether it's environmental protection, all of those things actually have applications within the space context. It's just that a lot of times people don't think of their uh, their work if it's based solely on Earth. They don't think of their work as having applications in space because there isn't that much um, cross-pollination and dialogue, which is part of why, you know, I think, um, you know, I won't, I won't speak for you, Erica, but, uh, you know, I think is why Erica started her podcast, why I convened Decolonizing Mars. You know, like, I think that making opportunities for this kind of dialogue to happen um, is part of why we founded the Just Space Alliance. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly when I was uh, planning the program, um, the public program, for example, for uh, the Library of Congress, which was called Becoming Interplanetary and, um, you know, had these panels, I reached out to, for example, um, a scholar named Brenda Child, who studies 
the history of boarding schools um, here in the United States, meaning Native American boarding schools. So um, for your listeners who may not know, uh, there was a long history of um, people taking um, Native American children and uh, forcing them to go to boarding schools where they were given an education, but they were also stripped of their ability to practice um, their traditions, their um, their native language, et cetera. And so this uh, access to education question became a way of uh, destroying indigenous culture here in the United States. So when I reached out to um, Dr. Child, I asked her to be on this program, on this panel that was about access to education and the way that we think about like STEM education and what mm-hmm. is education for and who is included in education and, and space futures. And she thought I had the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I thought for sure that you wanted another Brenda child. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah. We, we keep having this experience as we talk to people. Um, and certainly when I was, when I was hosting my podcast, I would interview people who were labor rights activists and historians who had, who had never considered the context of their work in space, but once we got into the conversation, they realized that there was a lot of application, um, and and it's it's why we called ourselves the Just Space Alliance because our, our goal is not to be the sole arbiters of what is ethical in space, but rather to connect these people who have been doing this amazing work on Earth with the people who are making decisions about space. Hmm. And let me ask you: if our listeners forgot everything that we've been speaking about for the last half hour. What's that key takeaway that you might have for them? What do you want the listeners to keep in mind after they finish listening to the uh, to this episode? I would say space is not a blank slate, mm-hmm. but it does provide us with an opportunity to think about what kind of world we want to live in and uh, to, to work towards getting there. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I have something that's pretty congruent, which is that when we talk about these space futures, what we're really doing is talking about the kinds of futures that we want to make here on Earth. And um, that means that, you know, in some sense, it almost doesn't even matter if we send humans to Mars in the next 100 years, the next 10,000 years or, or what, because the issues that we face when we talk about space are very much about um, the kinds of futures we want to craft here. And that means that, you know, it it requires all of our voices to craft a better future for uh, the planet Earth, and um, that one of the ways of doing that is thinking about how we might live in somewhere like space. Yeah, that's great. One thing before you go away, are we going to be, in our lifetimes, are we going to be meeting up with uh, alien life at some point, if you're wagering on this? I certainly hope so. (laughs) Uh, You know, a lot of my my research is about um, detecting life uh, around on planets around other stars. And so, um, you know, I would certainly be really bummed, to put it lightly, (laughs) if I uh, if I go my entire life and we never detect signs of alien life out there. I think, um, you know, meeting as in in person or meeting after over the uh, over the interplanetary telephone, so to speak, um, are pretty different experiences um, or meeting on another planet. But I'm I'm pretty optimistic that that will happen at some point. Mm-hmm. I am also optimistic, but I, I always like to take the opportunity to warn the non-astronomers in the listening audience mm-hmm. that when we first find life, you're probably going to notice because it's going to manifest as a huge argument within the scientific astronomy community. <laughs> uh, unless someone actually knocks on our door, there's probably just going to be uh, several years of arguments about whether 
this uh, signature we found in the atmosphere of an exoplanet actually means there's life on the surface. But right. we'll get Which, it sorted. Good point. Very yeah. good point. Which I will, I will remind listeners that that is how science works, and it is totally fine for there to be several years of argument before it's we go thing. announcing something. <laughs> well, now, now we know what to expect. Look, exactly. thank, you, thank you both uh, sincerely very much for your time and for uh, shedding light on a topic that uh, is fascinating. And uh, I wish you uh, great success with your, with your endeavors. So thank you so much, both of you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for Thanks. inviting us, Alberta. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.